Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast for episode number 138 with Dr. Daniel Ansari, a professor and Canada Research Chair in Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience and Learning in the Department of Psychology and the Brain and Mind Institute at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, where he heads the Numerical Cognition Laboratory. His name is well known in the field of educational neuroscience with a focus on numeracy and math, which I know our listeners will find fascinating as we make connections with how children acquire math and numeracy with brain science in mind. Which brings me to our next guest, who I came across a few months ago while researching neuroscientists who specialized in the field of education. Dr. Daniel Ansari's name came up as a speaker at the Dropping Out What Neuroscience Can Teach Us International Symposium on the long-held paradigms of dropout prevention with his session that was called The Best Way for Children to Learn Math. And my attention was caught because when I worked at Pearson Education around 2004 to 2010, I was on a sales team that had a focus on one product for dropout prevention at the high school level, it was called Novanet. And I spent years promoting this program with the hopes of saving students who are at risk of dropping out. I wrote down Dr. Ansari's name on my desk with the idea that I'd look him up and see if he would come on the podcast. Then I went back to work on researching in the field of educational neuroscience and the researcher I'm working with, Mark Waldman, sent me an article that he thought would be of interest to me with a project I'm working on. I opened the article and it was called Annual Research Review, Educational Neuroscience Progress and Prospects by Michael Thomas, Daniel Ansari and Victoria Noland. And I immediately contacted Dr. Ansari. I don't believe in accidents, and when someone's name continues to come to my attention as somebody that I should be learning from, I don't want to waste any time. So without further ado, let's meet Professor and Canada Research Chair in Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience and Learning, Dr. Daniel Ansari. Welcome, Dr. Ansari. I was so happy when you wrote back after I contacted you after reading your research abstract on educational neuroscience. Thank you so much for being here today. Good to be here, Andrea. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. Well, Daniel, after you let me know, after we first spoke and uh, we, we were talking, you let me know that you were in lockdown in London, Ontario, Canada, and that your son was doing his schooling in your office. And as I was putting these questions together, this was just a couple of days ago, I saw that schools in Ontario, where I grew up, got my teaching degree, and was a teacher, according to a professor at the University of Western, have had the longest school closures in Canada. And as of June 3rd, a couple of days ago, it's been 23 weeks since March of 2020. What is going on with the schools in Ontario? And how do you think this is impacting student learning? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question, Andrea. I think Ontario's is on, on, on average, there's been school closures of around 26 weeks globally. So this is, uh, Ontario is by no means an outlier. It, it's, it's part of a global, what I would call a global educational uh, crisis that's been 
precipitated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we obviously know that, uh, you know, schools and in-person schooling can contribute to the spread of the virus. Uh, and therefore, of course, at, at times when they were, when we had a high test positivity, it seemed prudent to close the schools. Whether an ongoing closure at this point is, uh, is the right decision remains, remains the subject of significant debate. I think what you what is, what is happening is you, you need to have some kind of risk-benefit analysis, right? And what, what we're seeing globally and here in Ontario too is that students suffer when they're not in school. Um, you know, you see mental health effects. There's just recently been a study from Per Enskel and colleagues uh, from the University of Oxford published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences showing substantial learning losses in math and reading. And that was a study from the Netherlands, which is a very equitable education system. So I think what we're seeing with the pandemic and schooling is that gaps are emerging and gaps are widening as well. That's, I think we're seeing that uh, students who already before the pandemic lived in uh, poverty, lived with parents who have multiple jobs, uh, who uh, cannot take care of their children uh, in the same way as as those with greater means are being more affected by the pandemic as well. So we have a lot of work, I think, as we emerge out of this to repair the system and to also think about how we make the system resilient to, to future shocks of this kind. Um, so that's sort of, I think, how I see things and how what the research is showing us to this date. Um, it's a very uncertain time, I think, for education around the world. Um, where do we go from here? What's the role of digital technology? Uh, what are our priorities? Because in the end, education is, is built on our social, cultural priorities, right? Uh, it's a reflection of that. So the question is, where do we go from here? And I think we really need to start thinking about that now. Yeah, actually, we should have done that yesterday, and some people are, but I think uh, at least here locally, the policymakers don't seem to be extremely proactive about making sure that when we come to the fall, that children can have um, a relatively normal school experience again. Absolutely. Thinking about the future generations as well, like what this has done especially with your research with literacy and numeracy seeing these gaps yes yes that's 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 something we really need to address and make sure that we give students ample opportunity to catch up but beyond the academic things i think that the role of school as within communities as safe places for students uh, who may not necessarily have safe homes uh, these are, for me, the top priorities before we get to the academics. I think that's where students have lost the most. Uh, and that's, that's where we really need to think and work towards that. I think uh, we need to really classify uh, education as an essential service in our society uh, and work towards that. I think the pandemic has revealed just how essential it is. Where the governments will follow suit remains to remains to be seen. Um, now also, one thing that I found really striking um, during this time is that education is almost pitted against the economy, at least here in Ontario. You know, people talk about reopening the economy versus reopening schools. 
Well, we know from research that, of course, healthy children and good schooling are the bedrock of economic success. So it's, it's odd to see them put at opposite ends of the spectrum when, in fact, they are related to one another in really, really important ways. Uh, and one of the simplest ways is, of course, that if children are at home, parents can't fulfill their, their economic duties exactly. you know, to their jobs uh, to the fullest extent. Uh, but there are, of course, long-term implications of, you know, what is the what is the sort of intellectual capital that you have within your society, and how is that going to drive forward economic success? But unfortunately, those long-term goals are not something that politicians necessarily care about because they typically have a term election and they need to work towards winning elections. So they all start with education, but don't necessarily follow through on it. That's that's my viewing of it, yep. at least here. Absolutely. And, and lots to think about here. And I've been interviewing people in in the field of education through the pandemic, seeing lots of different angles to distance learning, uh, having successful distance learning has so far been my most downloaded interview for educators probably that they're thrown into suddenly using this technology, not knowing how. So I can see the progression of it, lots of learning from the educators point of view, as well as the students, many of the students have been helping the educators and also seeing how my children dealt with learning at home. Um, my oldest missed the social aspect of school and the youngest, I think, did well because she was able to have breaks doing things like going and petting the cat in between her studies, which she couldn't do in the classroom. And so for her to sit in the classroom without any break was difficult for her. So seeing different sides of being able to study at home. Have you noticed any positive angles with your son being at home? What, any, any things he's excelled with, with this environment? Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, he he can pet the dog in between and and that kind of thing and play outside. But uh, you know, I I always have to bear in mind that you know he's he's a child that that's growing up with a lot of privilege because he's you know the son of two professors and um, you know he has resources at his disposal which many other children do not. So I think for that's again where we go to this divide between the the. The haves and the haves not when it comes to education and i think that's where the, the effects are most dramatic but i can see that there are elements to it that can be that that can be beneficial i think you know he he has learned to organize himself a little bit more you know he, he knows he knows much more about schedules now he doesn't go by the bell but he has to have an internal bell so he has to remember when to go back into class after he's had some recess time or independent learning time so I think his timekeeping skills have definitely uh, improved, um, but he he also cannot wait to be back in the classroom. Um, I think he he needs he needs that uh, desperately, like so many children. So I can see some positive effects, and and there's certainly something some lessons we can learn from any emergency, any any crisis. I think there's there's definitely lessons to be learned. At, at both the negative end and at, at the slightly more positive end as well. Yeah. Well, I'm praying that everything goes back in September for everyone over there. 
Um, my friends are all educators back home, so I, I can see what's happening with you as well as through the educator side of it too. Everybody's dying to get back. Oh, yeah. But so, Dr. Ansari, when I first began to research this field of educational neuroscience, it was 2014, around that time period. And it was because an educator urged me to go in this direction. I had a program that was given grant funding for the schools in Arizona, and I was desperately trying to do something in the field of leadership and character. And he said, you know, you've got to incorporate how the brain learns. And there were not a lot of resources for me to go to. He threw all these books off his shelf, like um, David Souza's How the Brain Learns and um, Brain Rules from John Medina. And then the term educational neuroscience, I didn't know about it until I found Dr. Lori Desital. She's from Butler University and heads up the educational neuroscience graduate program there. But can you share how you came on this path? You were working in England and how you came to Dartmouth's college first undergraduate program in neuroscience and maybe your vision for where this field is going. Yeah, yeah. Um... So the, my own personal history or journey into educational neuroscience, um, really, uh, I'm I'm the I'm the son of two teachers, so education has always been something that uh, was a topic of conversation in my house growing up, and I, you know, when I started studying psychology, I became very very interested in developmental psychology. And then uh, during my PhD, I started working on numeracy. And then the link to education becomes very, very clear because math is one of the core subjects in any education system. And then really, I had the opportunity to join the uh, Department of Education at Dartmouth College. It was my first uh, faculty position fresh out of my PhD. And they were building, Laura and Petito and uh, Kevin Damba were building a program in educational neuroscience there. So then I started thinking a lot more about what it means to make connections between neuroscience and education, and particularly cognitive neuroscience in education. And um, my colleague at the time was Donna Koch, uh, who is still at Dartmouth, um, uh, and she was very influential in in my thinking, we we had a lot of discussions like, how do we make this work? You know, we're we're trained psychologists now. We are in a faculty of education, uh, tasked with this job of forming a new program, thinking about ways in which we can build bridges. Um, and there was some resistance to these ideas as well, so we had to deal with that. And being junior faculty member and uh, members, and in in two thousand five, we started working on a paper that was published in two thousand six in Trends in. Um, cognitive neuroscience called uh, bridges, bridges, bridges Over Troubled Waters, Education and Neuroscience. Um, I can't remember the precise title, but it definitely had Bridges Over Troubled Waters. And that really, you know, there we really started to discuss the pros and cons and the difficulties. Um, my vision for the field is that I think was really lacking at this point are people who work at the middle, right in the middle between education and neuroscience or education and developmental psychology, science of learning, um, and that we need to create more uh, positions within school districts, school boards, where there you have somebody who is both, both an educator, but also versed in, in the neuroscience and in, in the psychology and knows something uh, and, and can reach the right literature 
on, on how we learn and, and help teachers integrate that literature into their practice. So we need really, I think we've got enough, uh, uh, you know, we need to, of course, keep on working at the knowledge, but the knowledge translation is where the gap really is. And that's, I think, where we need to not just say, you know, professors, you both generate the research and do the knowledge translation. No, we need to have, you know, just like you have in clinical psychology or in medicine, you have research practitioners. We need to have something like a research practitioner model in education where you have people who are trained to really think about research and think about the application of that research. But they need to be, not be working in an academic institution per se, but they need to be working right where they're accessible to teachers. Um, so that's kind of my vision where I think we've got structural changes that need to happen. And that, of course, requires political uh, will to, to do that. Um, um, and I think we need to integrate also more of educational neuroscience and the science of learning into pre-service teacher education. Uh, you know, the, the knowledge that teachers get in their programs is impoverished when it comes to what we know about development, mm -hmm. about cognitive development, about brain development, about the interaction between the two. So they need to strengthen in-service and pre-service teacher training. Uh, and we need to have people who work at the intersection really structurally there and not just an ad hoc thing where, you know, you have one academic doing this great knowledge translation and then it fizzles out. It needs to be more systematic than that, in my view. So that's kind of my long term vision for what, how I would like to see uh, the field moving. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I see the parallel between the, your vision and perhaps where social emotional has come into the schools because I watched it, you know, no states had social emotional. When I first started doing this research, I would watch castles and how they're integrating the SEL into the curriculum and it went slow. You know, there was started out with like seven states that had SEL into their curriculum. And now they're right up there with almost every state, definitely every state is aware of it. And now there's positions appointed. I'm um, just trying to learn more about how they can get versed on social emotional. So I see that that happened and that wave with social emotional, but I love the vision of it now for neuroscience because they're so connected to me, at least I see, that's why I named the podcast, um, it's neuroscience meets social and emotional learning. I see how they um, bolster each other. Yes, absolutely. I think. I think we need to think about this very broadly, as you sort of, I think, are indicating that it's not just one field, but anything we can take away from research about how children learn could potentially be useful for what's happening in classrooms and could also help us to, to establish what doesn't work, right? That's also an important angle of all of this is that there are a lot of products and um, uh, books that are being sold to educators that have the pretense of being evidence-based, but are in actual fact not supported by research. So we also need to do some good housekeeping in education and make sure that, you know, we don't just look for how research can improve education, but also for what's been misleading and what needs to make its way out of the system so that we don't waste precious instructional time. So I think we have, that is one of the roles of research as well is to say that actually does not work or it doesn't work in the way that you expected or 
you know, this is how much change you can expect uh, in return for, do, for doing this instructional intervention. Um, and I think that's really helpful to think about, you know, how much can you move the needle and are there things that move the needle more than others? And I agree with you, the integration of social and emotional learning, I just, um, it just happened here as well in Ontario for the new math curriculum. There's a big section on that where, you know, there's a lot of talk about math anxiety and, and stereotypes and, and, and those sort of things that I think are, are really important to be integrated into the curriculum because we can't just treat children as if they are, you know, just a just an information processing system that we feed with information and then outcome learning outcomes. But we need to take into account the context, the individual, uh, their attitudes, their feelings, um, and uh, we need to strengthen those aspects as well as the core academic subject. So if we can do both, then I think we're on the right path. Got it. I love this vision and the work you're doing at Western University's Numerical Cognition Lab. So when I looked at your website, I could see what you're working on over there. And, and after I left teaching, I went into Pearson Education. So got a chance to work with one of the largest educational publishers. So I love to see that you're creating assessments for the students. Is, is that correct, what you're doing with your um, with your lab over there, but I wanted to just ask, you know, I'm sure you hear this often, but why did you put your focus on numeracy and math with this, you know, and, and I watch the videos and I can see the scientific and societal implications, but most people probably don't think about this. We always think, you know, reading is so important, but why did you go to math for um, looking at this with a whole new lens? Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's a great question, Andrea. It's, it's a really, it's an autobiographical pathway that is was honestly accidental. So um, as I already said before, during my undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Sussex back in the UK, I became fascinated with development. I wanted to become a developmental psychologist. Um, I took a course actually on socio-emotional development and I took a course Perhaps my most influential course was on infant cognition. Um, and it was only chosen by five students. So we had the professor to ourselves. And uh, it was a very, very influential course. And I'd, I'm, I became passionate about developmental psychology. So then I started looking for opportunities to, to turn that into a graduate degree. And I was in, you know, this was uh, in, the, in the late 90s. So internet was just sort of coming on online so people were still reading things like newsletters right so i was in the in the in the coffee lounge area of of my department at sussex as a student and i was leafing through the british psychological society newsletter and i found this advertisement for a phd position at university college london with annette carmelo smith and they were looking for somebody who was going to look at numeracy in williams syndrome a rare genetic disorder so i applied for that and I got that. And that's really how I ended up studying numeracy, because I had a PhD position um, that was funded to look at this. But then I quickly discovered that this area was under-investigated. There wasn't, you know, it was compared to reading, there was half, perhaps even less knowledge about how we learn about numbers and how children learn about numbers. And I realized that you could do so many different things with numeracy you could study the educational side the basic scientific side the 
fascinating aspect that you know human beings have invented symbolic systems such as Arabic numerals to represent numbers. No other species has that. What does that mean? Uh, how do culture and biology interact with one another? So I guess over the years, I've just stuck with it because it's always been the vehicle to study more general questions around what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to develop? How do we educate? So it's not as though I'm, I came into psychology with a specific interest in numeracy. It's just that numeracy has become the vehicle for me to study all sorts of aspects of, uh, of, of human cognition and uh, also the brain. And, and how numbers are represented in the brain. So I don't know how much longer I'll be a numeracy researcher. I mean, I sometimes think that I might switch, but I, I keep on coming back to interesting questions. We certainly have broadened it. You know, we've, we've studied not just numbers, but intersection between number and reading, intersection between number and spatial cognition, math anxiety. So I've tried to bring in lots of different angles to a central problem, um, but, yeah, so that's that's basically the, the short answer to your question is how did I get into it accidentally, and then it sort of just kept on going. Um, it's interesting, yeah. lots that you said there because I was born in Worthing, Sussex. So, oh really? I was, and then my parents emigrated to Canada. So, you know, you weren't there that's then. Amazing. But, you know, it's just interesting as you're talking about Sussex. I know it well. It's just fun to to hear your background. And also, uh, when you were talking about the whole angle of the numeracy um, and you falling into it, I remember when I first found you, I thought, you know, I, I saw the connection with math and then perhaps a little bit of math anxiety on my part. I still have nightmares that I've missed the math test and I failed and I thought I wrote your name down and I thought, you know, I'm just not going to contact him just yet because I didn't know the angle that I was going to take until I saw um, educational neuroscience. But just so that I don't raise my children with math anxiety, what do you think are some of the foundational numerical skills that our children should be proficient by with third grade? And how do we make sure that we don't put our fears of something on our children? You know, I wasn't great at math. And how do you how do you make sure that you don't share your fears with your children or your students even? Yeah, that, that's 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 that is very important to consider. So maybe I'll start with the math anxiety piece and then work myself back to the beginning of your question. Um, I think the most important thing to realize is that math anxiety is real. It's not something that people pretend to experience. You know, we I think we still always need to say that. I I don't know about you, but I grew up in an era where where people did the dyslexia was real, um, you know, or where students were just being lazy. And so I think we always need to acknowledge that these things are real. One of the real silver linings around mathematics anxiety that's been really strongly emerging over the last few years is that being anxious about mathematics doesn't mean that you're necessarily not good at math. The two things are really dissociated from one another. The correlation between math anxiety and math ability is very small. And many children who have math difficulties have no math anxiety at all. So that's that's a good piece of news and an important thing to know for everybody that when you encounter a student who has real resistance and a real sort of visceral reaction to math, 
Don't assume that they can't learn math. Give them an opportunity to do it in a different way, maybe in, in, a, in, a, in a different situation or with a different textbook or talk about what, what their fears are about. And that's what I think is important as well is, is the language and the talking because we know that the way that math anxiety works, just like any other anxiety condition, is it consumes part of your cognitive resources. When you're anxious, and we all have experienced this, when you find yourself in an anxious situation, you are, you are in a state of arousal and you start to reflect on what that means for you and how you're going to do it, how you're going to cope with that anxiety. And that mere sort of rumination and reflection means that now you have less resources available to do the task at hand. So let's say you're sitting in an exam and you're taking a math test. And at the same time, you're thinking, oh my God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not going to, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to do well. That's taking processing resources away from being able to do the math. But if you can be open beforehand, talk about it and talk about your fears that can help you be free of those fears or at least have less fears compromising your ongoing task performance in the math exam. So I think talking about it is, is, is important. Sian Bylock's work has shown that things like expressive writing, you know, writing about your fears can help to alleviate them. And I think as parents and teachers, we do need to reflect on how we, what, what is our attitude towards math? Because I often get the, you know, the when I tell people what I do, I, I normally say, you know, I'm a developmental psychologist. And then they will say, well, what do you study? And I say, I study math. And then they say, oh, I wish I'd known you, you know, 25 years ago, you could have helped me. And that's a very common reaction. I don't think many reading researchers get people saying, I really struggle to learn how to read. Mm -hmm. People are less likely to admit that. So we have that in our culture, in our Western culture, we have, uh, we are very quick to admit that we're not good at math. So I think we need to think about how that reflects on children. And we also, I think, every one of us needs to think about how we, who do we think is good at math? You know, what are our stereotypes about who's good at math? And one of the most common stereotypes is that boys are better at math than girls. And there we need to realize that, you know, most of the big international comparison studies show that gender differences are very, very, very small when it comes to math. So we need to eliminate those stereotypes. We need to be more aware that math anxiety exists. We need to have a conversation about it, I think. That's that's very important. And, and, and try to be mindful as parents as well when we feel we can't do a certain mathematical task is maybe let somebody else do that. Because I think the worst thing is trying at something when you are anxious and then sort of passing on that anxiety to our students and our children. And we know from research that that is possible, that uh, for lack of a better term, math anxiety, your own math anxiety as an individual can rub off on to students and they can carry that forward. Um, so that's sort of, I think, where we are with math anxiety. And I think your, your first question was about what kind of building blocks do we need to have in place, is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so I know for third grade, it's so important for reading the implications. You've got to make sure that that your students can read proficiently by third grade or there's all sorts of future implications. And and I even saw I thought it was fascinating where you talked about uh, that there's predictors that if students are weak in, in math skills, that they in their future are more likely to default on their mortgage. 
payments or loans. I thought, you know, how did they discover that after all, all those years of following students? So what would need to be in place by, let's say, third grade? Are there certain skills that, that we need to make sure that they hit a marker so that we don't mess up their futures? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think math is slightly more complicated than reading in the sense that there's many different skills that need to be in place. But I would say that it's very important for students by third grade to have very, very good number sense. And by number sense, I mean something quite broad. So starting early, students need to learn that words represent quantities, you know, that three refers to all possible sets of three. That's a fundamental understanding and then transfer that onto numerals. Then of course they need to uh, become fluent with arithmetic operations and also understanding the relationship between uh, arithmetic operations, understanding, for example, the relationship between multiplication and addition. And they need to start by third grade to think about fractions, to think about proportions, to think about numerical relations. So I would say number sense broadly defined, a flexible way of being able to think about numbers, not being rigid in only one procedure, but being able to approach problems with multiple types of solutions, I think is really important. And having some good solid factual knowledge that is then able to free the mind of students when they're doing more complex problem solving. And that starts uh, as early as first grade when students first use their fingers to add, um, which they typically all do. And then gradually they transition away from finger counting to more retrieval-based strategies. And even within finger counting, they transition from uh, a strategy where they count all the, the, the uh, count the fingers for both of the add-ins, three plus five, versus a strategy where they hold up five and then say six, seven, eight, which is much more efficient, of course. So seeing that progress, you know, that that gradual fluency with number, that 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 good number sense that I think needs to be strengthened there, and then of course there's other things, you know, that um, thinking about numbers spatially is something that um, a lot of research is showing. There's such tight relationships between space and number, um, so I think that's incredibly important as well, um, but. Yeah, so I, it's it's kind of a broad answer, but I wouldn't say there's one thing that needs to be in place by grade three. But if if there's one thing I think about, it's this flexible thinking about numbers and quantities, understanding uh, part-whole relationships, being fluent with uh, the arithmetic operations, having some factual knowledge. Um, those are, I think, really key things to, that will prepare you well for for the future of, of, of your mathematical career. That's helpful, definitely helpful. And, and before even coming across you, the only other book I've ever seen on the brain connected to math was David Souza's How the Brain Learns Mathematics. So it was the first time I actually had a chance to look at what he thought were important brain regions for learning math. And he actually did some brain imaging and I was fascinated when I saw that you're doing brain imaging at your labs. And he found that the region of the brain that controls finger movement is associated to 
the same region of the brain when it's counting. And you just talked about that with, with counting, but he wasn't sure if this was coincidental or if the two parts of the brain were connected. But when you're doing your brain image scans, are you finding anything like this that's fascinating that could be helpful for parents or teachers to understand what's happening when a child is learning math? What parts of their brain are they using? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, we've done a lot of different, we and others have done a lot of uh, different brain imaging. I would also really mention the, the Stanislas Dehaan and his book, The Number Sense, which I think is one of the most accessible, fantastic books if you want to get into the neuroscience of or the cognitive neuroscience of mathematics. I think one of the things that we are discovering is um, that that there is this tight relationship between spatial processing and numerical processing. And I think that has really important implications for the classroom. It means that we need to help students to visualize mathematical problems more and the solutions to mathematical problems and to use spatial strategies, such as the use of number lines, the use of number paths, but that can really help uh, their, their understanding. And there's fascinating research by actually by Stanislas Dehanu put mathematicians uh, into the into the scanner and looked at which brain regions do they activate during really complex mathematical thinking. And those brain regions intersect with those involved in spatial processing and not those involved in, with language. So the link between number and space is closer than the link between language, uh, language and number are less closely associated. That's, I think, one of the important lessons from brain imaging. And regarding the finger um, representations, I do think there is something in that. I mean, one of the most fascinating findings, I think, is that if you do a test of what's referred to as finger gnosis, so if you ask a child to hold their fingers under the table and then you touch the fingers and you ask them to, which finger did I just touch? That simple test is a very strong predictor of mathematical abilities later on. So there seems to be something about, you know, fingers as a, a representation of sets um, that is that is incredibly important. But I don't think we know yet the mechanism by which these two things come together. But they certainly are linked. And even, you know, before we had brain imaging tools, we knew from neuropsychological patients that if you have damage to a region in the left hemisphere, the left angular gyrus, that you have both lose your finger gnosis, so you become terrible at this test I described, and you become terrible at math. So, and that, that's been known since, you know, uh, the 1900s. So uh, just from the study of patients and how, wh what their cognitive profile looks like after an accident. Um, so there's something there. I think brain imaging can teach us something. It, I don't think it's, it's gonna, without thinking about behavior and how children think and perform, it's one additional source of information. But I think the link between space and number is, is a key conclusion from what we're seeing. And also that the brain changes dynamically as children learn and develop mathematical thinking. So, you know, what we know from adults isn't necessarily applicable to, to children because their brains are still developing, still specializing and structuring uh, through experiences. That is fascinating. I can't wait to 
dive deeper into that. Um, we just actually released a podcast on a fascinating story of a child who had a developmental reading disorder. And so they failed first grade in 94, but yet he went on to graduate with his PhD from Oxford in 2018. And his mother used brain-based learning strategies. But I know we, we've actually, I've just released a podcast to go deeper into this for our listeners, but can you give a brief overview of developmental dyscalculia? Did you go into it on your website deep, but um, perhaps for some people who don't know what it is because you know it's closely associated with dyslexia, perhaps what is it? How can we recognize it? And some strategies like you talked about the learning rods. I know there's educational companies that specialize in these tools to make math come to life. I mean, what perhaps the easiest way to think about developmental dyscalculia is to, to, to think about it as the analog of developmental dyslexia in the domain of mathematics. So it's a specific learning difficulty with math. Children who have developmental dyscalculia uh, have great difficulties adding and subtracting. Long after their peers have stopped using their fingers, they're still using their fingers. They don't typically retrieve answers from memory. And many researchers think that at the heart of developmental dyscalculia is an inability to really process quantities, to have that number sense. Um, and we know that from the literature that children and adults with developmental dyscalculia are, for example, very slow at judging which of two numbers is bigger if you show them two and eight and one and two to select the larger of the two numbers. They're much slower at that than, than children and adults with, without developmental dyscalculia. Developmental dyscalculia affects between four to seven percent of the population. It is also very often uh, comorbid, that is, it co-occurs with developmental dyslexia. So those two are often uh, within the same child and also attention hyperactivity disorders. Why that is, we don't know. It's possible that there's a large genetic overlap. It is possible that it has to do with other factors. Some possible causal pathways that we haven't um, uncovered yet. And we still have a lot to learn about development of this calculator. In terms of strategies, I think um, here I would really recommend reading a, a recent uh, report that I can also send to you. Maybe you've seen it. It was published by the Institute of Education Sciences in the US, a report that was led by Lynn Fuchs on evidence-based strategies for helping students with mathematical difficulties. And they identify, I think it's six evidence-based principles. I can't remember all of them, but one of them is working with number lines, uh, being explicit in the teaching. I think that's, that's important, you know, not just expecting students to discover things by themselves, but to really scaffold their learning carefully. Uh, using some timed activities, uh, thinking about mathematical language. So this, this is a fabulous report that I would recommend to, to anybody who wants to know more about developmental dyscalculia. Then the other place where I would look for developmental dyscalculia is understood.org uh, has a lot of resources. I've helped to develop some of them, but they've got a lot of resources on dyscalculia. Um, but uh, yeah, we know much less about dyscalculia than we know about dyslexia, but some of the lessons that we've learned from research in dyslexia apply very well to dyscalculia. So the idea that, you know, we need to go back to the very basics. So 
dyslexia, I think, was really the, the research started to really inform practice when people started to break things down and say, well, what's at the very core? Well, at the very core is connecting sounds to letters. Well, in, in, at the very core of math is connecting quantity to symbols, you know, to understand that three apples can be represented by writing out T-H-R-E-E or putting this Arabic numeral three. Those connections are really going to scaffold what happens next. So I think thinking about foundational skills is incredibly important when you encounter students with math difficulties. And I did put a lot of those links, to, especially to the website understood. I found that and put those in our last podcast to understand, and I'll link them in here. But Dr. Ansari, I do have a vision for your future with educational neuroscience. It's a clear picture you paint. I am loving the research that you're putting out through your work. Um, for anyone who wants to learn more about you, they can go to numericalcognition.org. They can find you on Twitter at Noom, N-U-M-C-O-G. Is there any final thoughts that you think that are important that we've missed in this field? I think the, the one thing I would say is to uh, be aware that the brain science is part of a bigger endeavor to understand how we learn and develop and the thing the way we can make most progress is to take knowledge from wherever we can you know i'm the longer i'm in in my field i realize that really these silos of fields are unnecessary we need to think more broadly and more laterally you know we need to draw from all sorts of uh, sources to inform our understanding and then to inform our teaching um and i would close with a positive note and say you know i think the, the excitement around research impacting education is only growing every day. And I think we have a very bright future ahead, which also means that hopefully our children have a really bright future because they'll benefit from these efforts. And that's, that's, that's the eventual goal. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Ansari. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 